I had a good laugh with the first service because I, I, came, I came here yesterday to do work on my sermon. Um, and so I asked, I asked for an extra word of prayer because I arrived here yesterday to work on my sermon. And as I, most of you probably know, we've had to go through the ugly process of taking Skate Church apart screw by screw and, and moving the ramps in different places. And I got here yesterday and Paul Anderson and a group of dudes were just dropping off a load of ramps in the garages over here. And, and Paul saw me pull up and he went, get in the van. And I was like, no, dude, I got to work on my sermon. He's like, the Lord will provide get in the van. So I got in the van and I didn't even open my Bible yesterday. So I needed an extra word of prayer. So let us pray real quick, open up in a word of prayer and then we will get into, into God's word. Bow with me, please. King Jesus, thank you for your life. Thank you for the unique way that your love exists on earth through the hands and the feet of, of moms. They are so important. Our, our entire society is, is, is pieced together in a great way because there are mothers out there who are caring for their, for their children. We pray, Lord, that you, that you move this morning, that your word is, is that your word is preached, that your word is heard. Lord, I pray that my, my opinions, my thoughts are put to the side and that we hear only what is in the Bible. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move and that you would comfort and you would convict and that you would change hearts, that you would, that you would bring sustenance where there needs to be sustenance and an encouragement where there needs to be encouragement. There is so much in this text to be encouraged by. We trust you in all things, Lord. It is in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. If you have a Bible, please open up to John chapter 4. I'm the John guy. We're not going to do Romans again. We're going to do another story out of the book of John. John chapter 4, the famous woman at the well. Starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, and he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. <clears throat> a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in that person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one, the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are our prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The author of this gospel, John, the apostle, he gives us a succinct statement, a a summary, a reason for what the book of John exists for, why he wrote it, what the goal is, why he went through the time and the effort to pen this book. And he gives us that, he gives us that reason in chapter 20. After Jesus is raised from the dead and after the incident with Thomas, where Thomas is like, I'm not going to believe this guy unless I can see the nail, the, nail, the nail holes in his hand and I can touch his side, I'm not going to believe. And it's interesting that Jesus actually comes to Thomas and Thomas' demands of Jesus then become Jesus' commands of Thomas. And Jesus says, here I am, look. And it's after, it's after this that John, <clears throat> John writes these words in chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is why the book was written. That is why the book exists, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Not just a prophet, a teacher, a wise man, learned, charismatic, but that he is God in the flesh. We hit that point again and again and again in the book of John. It's why the book of John exists. And that in believing that, in believing that Jesus is who he is, not who we make him up to be, not who we were comfortable with him being, not what we would expect him to be, but who he is, which is God in the flesh, come to seek and to save that which is lost, to give his life as a sacrifice for sins, to give us his righteousness whenever we put our faith in him. His resurrection from the dead was proof that he is who he says that he is, that he is God in the flesh, and it was proof that that sacrifice was sufficient to save people from their sins for all of eternity. That is who we believe Jesus is, and that he makes himself available to whosoever believes in me. So not perish, but have, have everlasting life. Whosoever. Ever. And we hit that point again and again and again in the book of John. And anytime I stand behind one of these, that is what I'm going to say. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Come, lived, died, rose again, ascended. And faith in him and in him only is eternal life. These These words, this testimony, Jesus is God, we see this again in the book of John and even just in the the early chapters of the book, we we run across it a few times and I just want to point these out. The entire book opens with these words, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was in the beginning with God. Now we don't have time to get into why John chose to use the word word, but suffice it to say that the word is Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. And this is where we get into that beautiful tall grass mystery of the Trinity, that God is three persons that make one God. Jesus was with God and he was God. Always with him, distinct, distinct from God, but also 
full deity. And that word became flesh, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The word is a he. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from God, the father, full of grace and truth. This is John the apostle's testimony saying Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. In chapter 1, verse 29, we hear these words from John the Baptist. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That story goes on. Jesus then starts to collect some disciples. He gets Andrew. He gets Simon. He gets uh, he gets Philip, and they come across Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's really skeptical at first, and is like, what good could come from Nazareth? But then in verse 49, Nathaniel says this, Rabbi, after actually meeting Jesus, Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And we will hear this testimony again from the lips of Jesus himself. He's going to reveal himself for who he really is, not to a military power, not to some influential political person, not to somebody who has great might or great esteem, but to a woman, a, a, a broken woman, a thirsty woman, just a normal person like us, a woman who's sitting at a well, a woman who he loves, a woman who he very deliberately and very directly apprehends. He goes after her and he finds her at a well and he reveals to this, to this sweet, precious woman who he is, and he saves her. He saves her from her ultimate thirst. And so our text picks up today. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, real quick, we know, we know why. Jesus didn't, didn't actually baptize people. He, he used his disciples to do so because that would have been the ultimate brag for anybody. And we're not about making people feel like they're cool. Who'd you get baptized by? Peter? Sweet. Who'd you get baptized, baptized by? Philip? Oh, that's, that's pretty cool too. I got baptized by Jesus. Even Paul the apostle was like, he wasn't, he, he, was, he said, I, I'm thankful that I didn't baptize many of you because we just will use anything to get arrogant. So his disciples were baptizing. It says that he left. So the Pharisees learned that he was discipling and baptizing, or he was, he was making and, and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. In Matthew 3, we get an idea of how popular John the Baptist was. It says in the text that people from all over the area of Judea and Jerusalem and the Jordan were coming to hear John the Baptist. They were getting baptized by John the Baptist. They were listening to John the Baptist. They were being taught by John the Baptist. And the Pharisees roll in like moths to a flame and they want to know what's going on. And John the Baptist says to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he continues to just blister them. They don't like John the Baptist. They don't like the competition. They don't like his message. They don't like that he's getting popular. And now Jesus is getting more popular. And we know the story. We know that human aggression built up and built up and built up until people were demanding that Jesus be crucified. And so to keep things from getting too hot too soon, Jesus heads north. Sort of delaying the inevitable, sure, but he also had a reason to leave that we're gonna see here. He heads north, it's getting hot, he's getting popular, people have the wrong idea about him, the Pharisees are gonna cause trouble. So he heads north, he left Judea and he departed for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. This is beautiful, he had to pass through Samaria. The thing is, geographically speaking, he didn't. He didn't have to pass through Samaria. And actually most Jews, especially rabbis, did not pass through Samaria. 
to get to Galilee. Judea is down here, Galilee's in the north, and Samaria is right in the middle. To the west is the Mediterranean coast, to the east is the Jordan River, and most Jews, and especially rabbis, because the Samaritans were an unclean people in the mind of the typical Jew. So they would, they would cut west and they would hug the, coast, the coastal route, go around Samaria into Galilee, or they would cut east over the Jordan River, north through Perea, and then cut back again over the Jordan River, bypassing Samaria to get to Galilee. Jesus had to pass through Samaria, or had to pass through Samaria. If you study the word had, I love this geeky stuff. If you take the word had, it's the word, this, and I, I always feel bad doing this because I have a lame English-speaking tongue, but it's the word die. In our, in, our, in our language, we would write D-E-I. It's the word die. And what it means is that this is, it's something that is required to, to happen, required to occur, even through decree or law. And if we look at some of the other examples, just in the book of John where this word is used, here's, here's a few. In chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The word must is the word die. No other choice, no other option. Your religion won't save you. Your morality won't save you. Your works won't save you. Your position won't save you. You must be born again. Still in the same dialogue, the Son of Man, he says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. There is no other choice. Jesus Christ was going to the cross. And all over, all over the Gospels, when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, that was the hour. He was going to be put up on the cross, and he knew it. It had to happen. The Son of Man must be lifted up. We looked at these words last week, the words of John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. Same word, die. Chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this flock and I must gather them also. Speaking of the Gentiles, the gospel goes to all people, all colors, all cultures, all places of the earth, all ethnicities. I must gather them also. There's no other way. And very importantly, chapter 20, when after Jesus has been raised from the dead, Peter and John book it to the tomb and they see that the tomb is empty and they're perplexed by this. And John the Apostle writes that they didn't yet understand that he must rise again. Jesus had to go through Samaria. It was a divine decree. He could have booked it around like everybody else did. He wouldn't have anyways because he's perfect. He's not, he's not conflicted with the human plight of racial arrogance and sin. But he had to. It was decreed for him to go through Samaria He had to pass through Samaria and he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. It's in Genesis chapter 48. Jacob's well was there and so Jesus, wearied from his journey, was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour. So real quick, the sixth hour, it could have been noon and it could have been 6 p.m. depending on if you're using the Jewish reckoning of time or the Roman. And the reason why people bring that up is because the, the, the story is because this woman's had five husbands, she's got a bad reputation, people think certain things about her that are unfavorable. And so to avoid the scorn and to avoid the pointing of the fingers and the sneering, she's going to the well by herself at a time of day when other women wouldn't be there. That's probably true, culturally speaking. It's not explicit in the text, uh, but the fact that he points out what exact time of day it was does lead most commentators to believe that what he's saying is that this, this woman is hiding, essentially. Her thirst for the things that are wrong have caused her to be someone who is hiding in even her daily life. 
And this is a woman that Jesus approaches. A woman, a woman from Samaria came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So let's clear the slate real quick, real quick and just say Jesus has come to the well and he's run into a person. It's just he's run into a human being. There's another person at that well. We're supposed to know. Four times we're told in these, in these verses, verses 7 and verses 9, four times we're told that this person is a Samaritan. Four times it's mentioned. We're supposed to know that this person is a Samaritan. This is a Samaritan person. They're from Samaria. They are a Samaritan. And if you cast your eyeball over to verse 27, which we're not going to get to today, but I'm going to steal something from it real quick. It says that whenever his disciples returned, they marveled that he was speaking to a woman. Now, John didn't need to write that. We're supposed to know there's something about this person being a woman. There's something about this person being a Samaritan. This woman is a Samaritan, and this Samaritan is a woman. What gives? Rabbis weren't allowed to speak to women in public. It was not tolerated. Even women of their own family, they weren't supposed to speak to in public, let alone some stranger at a well from a different region. And she's a Samaritan. What's the problem with Samaria? Why were all these Jews going around Samaria to get north? We've got to take a bit of a history lesson real quick. Back in the Old Testament, after the, after the reign of uh, King Saul, David, and Solomon, most of you probably know this, but for those of you who may not, after, after these three kings, Israel was divided into two different kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom and the southern. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. The capital of the, northern, of the northern kingdom was Samaria. The whole area became known as Samaria. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and they wiped out the entire nation. They took them into captivity. The kingdom was, was brought to its knees, but they left the sick, the weak, and the poor. And pagan nations came in and they intermarried with those that were left in the northern kingdom. And so they became a mixed race people. The, the, the children that were brought forth from those marriages were mixed all sorts of different ways with all Jews and all these, different, all these different cultures and people that came in and intermarried and their religion got diluted with all this pagan occult stuff. And to, to the Jew, they became a ceremonially unclean people. They became a people that were what they would consider a half-breed, which is a rough term, but this is the way that they thought. They, they were a half-breed people. They were a mixed race. Their Jewish heritage had been diluted and their religion had been diluted and we really don't want anything to do with them. Babylon came in and wiped out the southern kingdom and <clears throat> they went into captivity for about 70 years. And upon their return to the southern kingdom, after King Cyrus released them, they, were, they went back to rebuild their city, the temple, the walls. And some of the people from the north came down to help. And the, the true Jews of the south were like, no, no thanks. You're gross. Goodbye. They didn't allow them to help. And so with a chip on their shoulder, the people from the north went back and they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which we'll get to here in a little bit. But this is where this came from. There was racial tension. There was strife because of racial disparity. Nothing new. We have different reasons for it in our culture. It's a sin problem. It's a sin problem. We've been separated from God relationally. And that is going to rear its ugly head one way or another, no matter what. And it has for all time. It's always ugly. It's always wrong and God always hates it. And he ignores that and he comes to this woman who is a Samaritan woman because she is a person and he loves her. 
regardless of where she comes from, regardless of her sin, regardless of what she's done, regardless of the fact that she is a woman, God in the flesh comes and he sits next to this woman. And the disciples marveled about it. He loves this woman. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? So here, here's a point in the text when we, we need to listen. The way that I read the Bible and the way that I teach the Bible is I, I, I like some of the geeky stuff. It's the word die, which means it's, it's required. And so that means these different things. And here's all these different verses. And there's 722 BC. And that means that these people had problems with these people because of this stuff that happened a few hundred years. Here's something that we really need to listen to. That stuff is informative and it's fun. Here's, here's where we need to listen up. She doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. Nicodemus in chapter 3 didn't get it. He says to her, living water. She says, you don't have a bucket. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He said, I can't enter a second time into my mother's womb. That incident with Nicodemus, Jesus says, you need to be born of the water. and of the, You must be born again unless you are born of water and the spirit, which is Ezekiel 36 language. We're not talking about physical water. We're not talking about physical birth. Jesus is not teaching anything that has anything to do with terrestrial life. He's talking about spiritual realities. And this woman doesn't get it yet, and Nicodemus didn't get it. But this is Ezekiel 36 language that he's using back with Nicodemus, water in the spirit. Listen to these words from Ezekiel chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all of your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put, a new spirit I will put in you and I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes be careful and to be careful to obey all my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I shall be your God. Forgiveness of sins. I will cleanse you water. I will give you a new spirit. I will give you a new heart. Born again. Whenever we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior and trust him only, only by no other name is there salvation when we believe in him for who he really is, we are born again. We remain physically the same. Many things about our life may not change, but we are born again. Our, our name is put in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Spirit of God comes alive inside of us. We are, uh, we are made alive to the things of God. We're convicted of sin. We want to honor God out of praise and worship. We love because he first loved us. This is a, this is a, a new birth. This is water that cleanses from sin forever not understanding it yet this woman is like but bro you don't got a bucket living water come on hmm. and then she do you see this she kind of she kind of pulls rank on him a little bit she kind of like struts her stuff are you greater than our father <clears throat> Jacob he gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock like do you know where you are are you greater? Like, you're going to show up here. You're going to give us, you're going to give me living water, but you don't have a bucket. Like, do you, who are you, greater than Jacob? You know, the patriarch? You know, our, our Jacob, right? No? 
Who do you think you are, man? And Jesus ignores this. And he says to her, everyone who drinks this water, this water that Jacob gave you, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, I listened to a lot of different pastors. I listened, I read a lot of different commentaries on this passage. And it seems like there's almost two camps. And one preacher will land in one camp and another commentator will land in the other camp. And I, and I think that actually both could be possible. And one camp is this. One camp is that she just doesn't, she still just doesn't get it. She's saying, yes, give me this water, but she doesn't know what that means. Give me this water so that I won't be thirsty, so I won't have to come to this well anymore. Or she might be out and out just making fun of Jesus. And I almost suspect that that might be more likely. Jesus just came 20 miles from the Judea countryside. He lands at this well, and the word he's wearied, he sat at this well and he was wearied. That's the word kapiao. It means to be physically depleted. Not just like halfway point, sort of like got some sweat on his brow but ready for some more. It means he was physically tanked. This is, this is you after the marathon. Just jello-legged, hungry, thirsty, done. He's sitting at this well. And she's like, you're, you're tired, you're at this well, you don't even have a bucket and you're talking about giving me living water. Okay, you know what? Give me the water. Okay, wise guy. Go ahead, give me the water. You know who Jacob is? You don't have a bucket, living water, eternal life. You're not even supposed to be here, Jew. Like, do you, come on, man. You, you get it? She, there's this, there seems to be this, this resistance, this wall, or she just doesn't get it. And she's saying, okay, okay, sir, uh, give me the water and then go on your merry way. I don't, wanna, I don't like coming here in the heat of the day. I don't like dr dragging this water jars over my shoulders all the way back into town day in and day out. It's exhausting. I'm tired. My feet hurt. So yes, please, if you could do something to make my life a little bit easier, why not? Go ahead and give me the water and then move on. And that's not Jesus' offer. And this, as I was reading this, I thought, what, this is, I missed it the first several times. This is, but it's plain as day. What is it, friends, what is it I'm asking that you're thirsting for? That job, girlfriend, wife, house, school to end, PhD to be acquired, you're waiting for the trident to be pinned on your lapel. I can't pretend to know what it is that you might just be dying for. That you just think if I just had, if my life just had this thing, or if my life was 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 no longer no longer evolved around this thing, if, if there was this, if there's this presence, if that presence was gone, then, then, then I'd be living, then life would be good, then I'd be happy, then I would no longer be thirsty, then I would be satisfied. For me, I can't, I don't know what that is for you until we have a conversation. For me, it was my, it's it, my youth, it's my youth. 
I didn't realize this until, in, until just a couple of years ago. I realized I was, just a, I, was a, I was a youth junkie. I was addicted to this idea that I've got to make life count. Well, what's that mean, Ian? It means doing crazy stuff. Like I, I, want, I, I, want, to, I want to quit my job. I want to throw caution to the wind. I want to, I want to jump on a plane with a one-way ticket and figure it out. I want to stick my thumb out and then just see who picks me up. Burn my social security card, drink a fifth of Jack Daniels and dive off the Empire State Building? Why not? Cool. Let's get lost in a foreign country. Let's fill journals with words from places that we're going and cultures that we're experiencing and different foods that we're trying. Getting lost out there in the world. I had a head full of Jack Kerouac and Ken Kesey and these great adventure dudes that just went out and destroyed their lives, but they seemed to have a lot of fun doing it. And I thought, why not? And I woke up every morning for years with literally every morning for years in the pit of my stomach feeling like I'm just not doing it enough. I'm just not doing it enough. I'm just, I'm wasting my time. I'm, I, I need to do more. I need to travel farther. I need to get more lost. I need to try more new things. I'm 27, I gotta get this thing done. I'm 28, I gotta get this thing done. Waking up day after day after day. That whatever, whatever triumph I had the day before, it just wasn't enough. I ride my motorcycle from coast to coast. As soon as I got back to Portland, it wasn't enough and I went back. I live in a new city for a little while, it's not enough and I went back. I ditched my flight in Peru. I was, I was supposed to be on a plane in Peru flying back to the United States and I just didn't get on my flight because you know what? Why not? And I woke up whenever I did get back from Peru and it wasn't enough. I should have stayed longer. I should have gone someplace else. It was just eating away at me like a disease. I was thirsty. I needed to be sustained from something. The thing is, is that even, even if you're one of the lucky ones who gets that thing you're thirsty for, it doesn't, you know it doesn't actually, that thirst doesn't actually go away. It might grow stronger actually because now that you've got that thing, you've got that job, that position, that relationship, the reputation, whatever, now you've got to fight to maintain it. And now you're worried, oh man, if I lose it, then what? And your entire identity is wrapped up in that thing. Jesus doesn't promise that thing. He promises you eternity. The life of Jesus and the gospel tells us that, the, that that thing can't be satiated here. And we all have different ways of chasing it. Some it's drugs and alcohol, some it's experience, some it's relationships, multiple husbands, career. We're thirsty for approval. We need something. And the, the crux of it is, man, even if you get it, you know that it, it doesn't work. And Jesus' Jesus's life, Jesus' reality, the reality that we are created from a loving relationship, a God who created us with joy to be in heaven with him. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. That's our place. Everything, was, everything is gonna be rough when we're here to some extent. That place that Jesus is preparing, that inheritance that Peter talks about that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that is our home. And until we are there, even after you get saved, that this, the sustenance isn't going to be known fully until we are with him face to face. But we get a good taste of it here and it gives us hope to continue. Even if we don't get the thing that we're thirsty for, we know that heaven is waiting for us, that Jesus is going to welcome us with open arms and say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's that relationship that we need. It's that relationship that helps us endure the fight while we're still thirsty for so many things. And it's just good to know that that thirst actually isn't what you think it is.
I'm 34 now, which I know is still pretty young. I am getting the frost on top a little bit and food is sticking to me a little bit more than it used to. So I'm just at that turning point where I'm realizing that I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like, I'm not really old yet, but I'm also, I'm not 20 either, you know. I'm right in that in-between stage. And I, and I just am, I sleep like a baby because I know that that thing, that trip to Peru, that experience, whatever it might be, it's not what I thought it was. And I can let it go. I can, I can get up and go to work nine to five, trim my fingernails, take a shower, go to bed, and that's okay. I don't need to burn something down. I'm at peace because this isn't home. Because God is good and he's calling us, he's calling us home. She doesn't get it yet. She doesn't get it yet. The other reason why this doesn't seem to be an authentic request. The woman said, <clears throat> give me this water so I'll not be thirsty. If that was an authentic request, if she was like, okay, yes, Jesus, my Lord and Savior, give me, give me, the, give me the water, give me the eternal life, he wouldn't cut her. But you see, he cuts her a little bit. He's gentle, but he's direct. You remember the, the thief on the cross dying next to Jesus said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus just said, yes. Today you will be with me in paradise. I tell you the truth. Here he, he cuts her a little bit. Give me this water. And Jesus says, go call your husband. And she's been, she's been pretty chatty up to this point, And she suddenly gets pretty tight-lipped. I have no husband. You can, if you pause, you can, you can feel the pain a little bit. And we know what this is. She's, she's covering up a lie. She's hiding something with a little truth. I have no husband. True. What you have said is true. But don't dig any deeper. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Sin has to be addressed. Sin has to be addressed. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to save from that death. He offered his life to save from that death. Sin had to be brought up. He had to address it. Not out of poking fun, not out of sport, not because he enjoys it, but because he has to show this woman where she is. She has to be honestly assessing her situation. We can't hide. We can't lie. We come to Jesus full honesty, full repentance, falling at his feet because he is the king and he is our savior. He cuts her a little bit. He's not doing it for fun. You were right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five. And the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, notice she goes from calling him Jew, some Jew, to sir. He's got her attention. Knowing her past, his omniscience is, is making itself apparent. And she's growing more curious. This, this guy knows about me. In fact, we're not going to get this to this today, but later in the story when she runs back to town, she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. He knows, he knows her. And see, he's chasing her. He's chasing her. He's seeking and saving that which is lost. This sweet woman. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you, will you, will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. You don't worship what you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. Now the Samaritan people, I don't know a ton about the Samaritan people. They had they had some form of the Pentateuch. Uh, they did believe uh, they had a, they had a pretty good idea, a belief in morality. This woman having had five husbands, um, and the honest commentators are like maybe some of her husbands died. But the reason that Jesus brought it up isn't because her husbands just died. It's because there was some sin going on here. What's implied is that she was rolling through these relationships sort of promiscuously. And the people of Samaria wouldn't have been okay with this. Hence why she's probably coming to the well when she's coming to the well. So they had a certain belief in morality and they had a certain belief in God, but everything was mixed up, everything was weird. They didn't actually have the true scriptures. They didn't really understand who it was that God actually, as God actually revealed himself in the prophet and in, and in the holy scriptures. And Jesus is saying salvation is from the Jews. And even though the Jews, the Jews are, are blowing it, yes, they do have the honest scriptures. They do have the Old Testament. They do have the written word of God. We worship what we know. And it doesn't matter this mountain or Jerusalem. And here is the beauty. You know, Jesus said it his, his last night with his disciples, John 16. He says, it's actually good that I go because then the helper can come. If I don't go, the helper won't come. And that's the spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity that comes and makes himself alive, makes his home inside of us, causing us to become alive. And that can go, he can go, that truth can go to all the ends of the earth. When Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth, it's the spirit of God that, that draws. It's the spirit of God that, that brings you to life. Opens your eyes to the things of God. Makes your heart sensitive to the things of God. Gives you new birth. And that spirit, the spirit of God, goes everywhere without limitation. Jesus in his limited body could only be in one place at one time. So whether it's this mountain, whether it's Jerusalem, that culture, this city, that country, it doesn't matter. Pantata ethne, all ethnicities. God saves people all over the world from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. We are not limited to a temple. We are not limited to a specific worship gathering. We, all over the world, the Spirit of God goes, saves people from everywhere. This mountain, Jerusalem, the time is coming. And just a few decades after this interaction, the Romans came in and destroyed both, 70 AD. They destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. Broke them down to rubble. Not one stone left upon another. Worship the, worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And one of the most hopeful ways that I, that I have to think of this, I keep putting my wife on the spot, to worship God in spirit. The, the, the law had produced these people that were like, okay, it's... It's 7.15 in the morning. We got to go to the temple and we got to cut this thing's throat and we got to pour out the blood. And we're going to go over here and we're going to do a bunch of sin, but then we're going to come back over here and we're going to cut the throat and we're going to dump the blood. It was mechanical. It was worthless. And God eventually in the Old Testament says, I don't want your incense. I don't, I don't want your burnt sacrifices because our heart was far from him. And if I, if I came home from work one day and my wife Angela is there and I, and I go, okay, 
Maybe even in a, maybe even in a monologue in my own head, I'm like, all right, my wife's here and I'm supposed to ask her about her day and if she's hungry and if she wants me to help with dinner and did I forget anything? Um, ask her about how she feels and maybe, okay. Angela, go. You got like six minutes. How was your day? Okay, cool. What do you want for dinner? All right, fine. How's your mom? Sweet. Did you send her a Mother's Day card? Okay, done. No, that's not the way that works. My, my wife wants, wants me to want to know how her day is. My, my wife wants me to want to listen to what she has to say, what she, what she thinks, what she's feeling. And I do. And that's relationship. Worship God in spirit and in truth. We love because he first loved us. When you realize what God has done for you, look at what he's doing. I mean, just look at the condition that he's in. So humbled. It says in Hebrews that he holds up the universe, the cosmos, with the word of his power. In him, the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. All things are created through him, by him, for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. And yet here he is at a well, kapiao, beat to death, just exhausted, tired, thirsty, and doesn't even have a bucket. This is grace. We have a sympathetic high priest who has been tempted in all ways that we have been. Look at him. This is our God pursuing us, being made like us, humbly, taking on the form of a servant all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's tired. He, he, I mean, she's got a point. He doesn't even have a bucket. This is the God of the universe. And it's beautiful. And I, I pray, I need more. I need to realize this more. I need this. And we need this. This is, this is worship. When you see the depths that God has gone to send his son and, and to become so human, I mean, this is the same Jesus that fed 15,000 people with a few pieces of bread and some fish. He could have gotten water out of that well. Are you kidding? But he limited himself. He never used his miracles to benefit himself. He, he, he abstained from that because he was a human being. Oh, the pursuit. Friends, the pursuit. This is beautiful. Worship God in spirit and in truth. This is, this is reason to worship the pursuit that God has gone, the depths, the lengths. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. It's so good. His love is so good. And in truth, in spirit and in truth. The truth of what? Well, back to chapter one. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Jesus is the truth. Who is God? Look at Jesus. What does God say? Look at Jesus. What does God do? Look at Jesus. In him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus does. Jesus says in chapter 5, I can do nothing of my own. I can do nothing of my own. What I see the Father do, that's what I do. Jesus is God in the flesh, come to seek and to save sinners. And we must put our faith in him rightly. And I have grown up in the church and I know so many people, so many people who thought that Jesus, would, they had this idea that Jesus, you know, I mean, my parents talk about him and I go to church and I'm even in a private school and they talk about Jesus. So Jesus is important. But then, then they get out from mom and dad's house. They get out from underneath the tutelage of their their, whatever their school is, high school or otherwise, and then they get into the world and all of a sudden they don't care anymore. Because Jesus being a nice guy, Jesus being a teacher, Jesus being influential or popular or spiritual or whatever doesn't, it doesn't cut them. They don't realize who he is. He's offering eternal life and they're like, yeah, but he doesn't have a bucket. 
and they chase other things. Their thirsts ran me all over the world chasing my thirst. And some of my friends have, have died in that pursuit, just being young and dumb and chasing after the things that the world promised would make them feel good. Jesus is God in the flesh. And his life shows us that he loves us. He's hard after this woman. He is going for her. He wants her to get saved. He's not so much interested whether or not she has to carry that bucket of water to and from the well for the rest of her life, but that she's saved. Praise God. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. It's interesting, in the oldest text, the word he isn't there. And in, in some Bibles, I think my dad's got an NASB, and I think that he is in, is in uh, brackets. In the oldest, the oldest text, he isn't there. Jesus literally says, I who speak to you am. And that should be... <laughs> That should be alarming. Uh, turn the page a couple of times in John chapter 8, and we hear these words. Jesus, speaking to a group of the Jewish leaders, says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews say to him, Are you not yet? You're not even 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him because Jesus hid himself. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They picked up stones to throw at him because he said, I am. And I got to admit, when I was a kid, and this is why Bible teaching and getting into the nerdy stuff is actually kind of important because I didn't know that as a kid, and I read that and just thought it was bad English. I really did. I read that and was like, before Abraham was, I am? That sounds dumb. Like, let's just be honest. If you don't know what you're reading, before Abraham was, I was, right? Before Abraham was, I lived, I existed. Before Abraham was, I am. Book of Exodus, burning bush, you remember? That's right. Who should I say sent me? Tell them that I am sent you. I've heard, I've heard it many times. I've, I've actually been, um, I was confronted on the street by a guy who was like, Jesus never claimed to be God. Yes, he did. And the Jews knew it, and that's why they picked up stones to throw at him. Because he was claiming it. And here he is, not, not something that he went around talking about a lot. A lot of times he would heal people and he would tell them to be quiet. Demons would come out of people and they would say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God, and he would tell them to be silenced. Because people had political ideas about Jesus. They had military ideals for him. In chapter six, after feeding all those thousands of people, it says that they were gonna take him by force to make him become king and, and he went off into the, into the hills and hid. But this woman, she's got no agenda. And God in his sovereignty and God in his prerogative and in his wisdom knew that it was okay to tell her, the one who speaks to you, I am. This sweet woman. There she is. I don't know if Jesus would have walked 20 miles wearing that robe. But that actually, after the first service, there was a gentleman that came up and he's like, you need to draw attention to that window. And I forgot, thank you very much. There, yeah, there it is. The one who speaks to you, I, he, I who speak to you, Jesus says, I who speak to you am. 
claiming to be God. And this, this well that comes up, flows over into eternal life that Jesus was talking about, it's not in our text today, but we know the story. It bubbled over and she leaves her bucket and she runs into town and she says, is this the Christ? Come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. And in the, in the rest of the story, we find out that most of and maybe all of the town got saved. They said, it is no longer because of your word that we believe, but we have seen and heard and testify ourselves that this is the savior of the world. Not just a prophet, not just a nice guy, but the savior of the world. Salvation went forth. Jesus sent her into, she went, ran into the city as an evangelist, bubbling over with eternal life, excited to share the news of a man who told her all that she ever did and satisfied her thirst forever. Amen? This is our Jesus. He pursues us. He loves us. I'll close out with a word of prayer. The band will come up. It's a pleasure to be with you, Door of Hope. Bow with me. Jesus, thank you for your pursuit of us. Thank you for humbling yourselves into the depths to become a man who is not even, not even in, your, in your deity did you save yourself from being susceptible to hunger and thirst and fatigue to be a sympathetic high priest and to be tempted in all the ways that we are but without sin and thank you for that life that is given to us that record that is given to us your record when we put our faith and our trust in you and I pray Jesus that through your wisdom and through your spirit that you would encourage these people here today that whatever it is that they're thirsting after, whatever labor it is, whatever buckets of water it is that they have to carry daily, Lord, that you would just put on their hearts gently but with, with weight, that they are your children and that you count every tear and that you are aware of every hardship and that none of it is for naught, that this momentary, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comprehension and that we would be so overjoyed that we would worship and that we would go into the world and spread that good news to everybody who is around us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.